Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Ukraine's fight for survival is entering its third year. Right now, it doesn't look to be winning, but it remains firmly in the fight. In part, that's because of UK military aid, anti-tank missiles, artillery guns and air defence systems. 14 Challenger tanks, more than 2,000 drones and more than 50,000 rounds of artillery ammunition. Major General Annalee Riley gives us an insight into the huge support operation and how delivering the equipment is just the start. There are plenty of Rimi soldiers who've been at the end of a WhatsApp message sharing information with Ukrainians on the front, front line about how to repair British equipment that is being used to fight in Ukraine. But President Zelensky says artificial shortages of weapons are hampering his troops. And one of our close allies agrees. I'm sorry to say, friends, there are still ammunition in stock in Europe. From the Danish side, we, we decided to donate our entire artillery. Could we, should we do the same? Mike will explain the pros and cons. And the shake-up to service accommodation that's meant to modernise entitlements but has prompted thousands to call for a rethink. There are undoubtedly people who will look at this and feel that the offer that they joined under uh, has changed and, and not in a positive way. Zitrev with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. Ukraine's war for survival is now two years old, and Russia's just taken the town of Avdivka. And Mike, it's, it's symbolic at the very least, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, the Russians began attacking Avdivka last October, and it does represent something more strategically important than Bakhmut did. And the Ukrainians really did try to defend it. And they even sent in the 47th Brigade, Mechanized Brigade, who were the hard-fighting brigade a while ago. Then they sent in the 3rd uh, assault brigade quite recently just to try and keep the lines open to it and they failed to do that. So this is undoubtedly a military failure for Ukraine which opens up potentially the road, quite a long road, but it's a main road to Kramatorsk or the main road further south to um, Dnipro. And mm. both of those routes are really critical to Ukraine. Now that both those places are a long way away, but because they've got Avdivka, They've now got the routes to them, and the Ukrainians are going to have to dig in somewhere further west from where they now are. And there's been a lot of commentary suggesting the fall of Avdivka was down to a lack of ammunition. President Zelensky talked at the weekend about an artificial deficit of weapons. Is Ukraine's difficulty simply one of supplies? Uh, well, in part, it certainly is, yes. I mean, they did run out of ammunition in Avdivka, mainly artillery ammunition, because the Russians ended up with a 10 to 1 superiority in more or less all uh, forms of ammunition um, and a 3 to 1 superiority in troops. And so eventually the, the 3,000 Ukrainian troops who were there simply had to pull out and they look as if, they look as if they've lost 1,500 of those troops in pulling out. We, we haven't got confirmation of that, but it doesn't look as if it was very well conducted. And you know, Kate, I've been saying to everybody, this for Ukraine, this is the 1942 moment. 2024 mm -hmm. is like 1942 in the Second World War. It was a terrible year for the Allies, but the, the, the pendulum had already swung in 1941, but they didn't feel it until October, until the end of 1942. They held on, and then the pendulum swung back towards the Allies pretty decisively after October 1942, the Battle of Alamein, as it happened. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying 2024 is the 1942 moment for Ukraine. The only difference is we don't know which way the pendulum will have swung by the end of it. 
Well, we'll talk later about one country's radical answer to President Zelensky's call for more weapons. But before that, an insight into not only what the UK has provided to Ukraine over the last two years, but also how it's provided it. Defence Equipment and Support, DENS, has been responsible for sending everything from bullets to tanks for Ukraine's fight back against Russia. It's had to do that alongside its core role of keeping Britain's own armed forces equipped. The effort has been led by the UK's National Armaments Director and Head of DENS, Andy Start, and its Operations Director, Major General Anna Lee Riley. My role started um, when I worked in the Weapons Operating Centre, which was another part uh, within Defence Equipment and Support. And when the war started in February um, 2022, our, our focus was very much on supporting Ukraine with whatever we could provide and, 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 and quickly. Roll on to um, December that year, Andy had created the Operations Directorate. And our role is to coordinate the granting in kind of, of UK equipment across, so the gifting of equipment, but also the procurement of, of new equipment across to Ukraine. And we do that with the rest of, of DNS. And at the moment, for example, we have about 300 delivery lines running across about 22 teams. And those delivery lines can be anything from a complex weapon to a vehicle or to a piece of life-saving body armour or, or a medical pack. And Annalie, what does your military experience particularly bring to this? So first and foremost, um, I'm an army officer and I started my career in the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. So I'm an engineer at heart. And I suppose a lot of the equipment that we send to Ukraine is, is deeply complicated and, and therefore being an engineer, you know, helps in that. Being in the military, I have a, you know, understanding of the uh, conflict and that's happening uh, in Ukraine and I can offer appropriate advice. But I suppose... Also, I know how defence operates, so I can operate across the Ministry of Defence in, in, in main building, but also with the Army, the Royal Navy, the Air Force and Strategic Command. And then I suppose finally, a lot of our work is done with our NATO allies and my ability to be a military officer and, and speak to our NATO allies in that lens has also been very important. And Andy, what has been delivered so far to Ukraine over the last two years? Well, the scale of support, frankly, has been monumental. We've provided billions of pounds of worth of support. It started with uh, gifting equipment. It went on to helping the Ukrainians buy more ex-Soviet equipment to maintain and support the legacy Soviet-era equipment they had, and then helping them transition that to, uh, to modern NATO standards. And on top of that, uh, an enormous amount of training. We've trained uh, collectively across UK defence. We've trained about 34,000 uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian uh, armed force, forces members and it's not just the training they'll leave with the uniforms with the boots with the packs with everything uh, the body armor everything they need to uh, to become uh, a pro professional and capable soldier sailor, sailor or, uh, or air person. To date the UK has committed over seven billion pounds worth of equipment to Ukraine and that's been everything, you know, as we mentioned before, from sort of uh, complex weapons through to long range drones, through to life saving equipment such as, um, you know, body armour, first aid packs, tourniquets for soldiers in the front line. So the scale of effort has been massive and completely far reaching across the whole of defence equipment support. And Andy, how do you balance uh, the gifting from UK stocks versus new procurement? So it's an operational judgment for, for the UK uh, to decide how much risk it's prepared to take 
initially there were some things that were easily accessed to our requirements because uh, for example there may have been uh, historic equipment that we were due to retire or equipment that was coming towards the end of its life so it becomes easy to gift. Over time we have progressively as a, as a nation chose to take decisions to give some really high-end equipment. We were the first nation to deliver modern state-of-the-art tanks with the gift of Challenger 2s. And uh, we were the first nation to give really high-end, long-range strike capability that has been so, uh, so instrumental uh, in donating Storm Shadow. So those decisions are, are very much decisions made at the top of the shop by, uh, by the Prime Minister and the uh, Secretary of State. But balance the fact that by helping Ukraine protect continental Europe, we are lowering the risk uh, to UK and to our own homeland. And that decision-making on how much we need to keep and how much we can send, Andy, I mean, it, does it fall to the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State or there must presumably be other people involved in those decisions? No, absolutely. The, uh, the, the conversations obviously happen across all of the uh, chiefs of service uh, and the teams that support them. And, uh, and, and clearly, we provide them advice as well in terms of the level of stock holdings that we have and also how quickly we can replace equipment. But the actual final decision about whether or not we're going to gift a particular item is made uh, by the Defence Secretary. And Annalie, how do you actually get the equipment to Ukraine? Uh, through a variety of means, by literally by air, by land and by sea. So a lot of the equipment um, goes through uh, staging posts and is coordinated in its move into country by the International Donation Coordination Centre that works out of Germany. Um, obviously, I can't talk about specific movements of equipment, but one of the highlights last year, which was well publicised, was the largest uh, movement of ammunition from UK shores since World War Two, which was a, a massive move of equipment. In fact, the photographs of, of, of the convoy um, were, were huge as it sort of staked across Europe. So a fantastic effort and on a, on a massive scale. Mm. Uh, listening to what you say there, Andy, um, how big a challenge has this been? You must have had to scale up parts of your work to historic levels. So the scale of delivery, as you said, is enormous. And that's on top of a very, very busy day job. We, we are obviously extremely active in supporting every bit of defences operations around the world uh, on any particular day, as well as delivery of, of all the new equipment. So we have all of that. And then we've loaded this on top. So I think... I think it's been around 20% increase in the amount of work we've had to do as a team. And we've absorbed that without changing the organisation. So it's meant that everybody's had to be very efficient, very agile. And there's been an enormous amount of leaning in, not just within my organisation, within DNS, but actually within the military, within wider Ministry of Defence and within industry. UK industry, uh, large and small, has been phenomenal in leaning into, uh, into making sure that we, uh, we help keep Europe safe. And Annalie, what about the military? How much of an ask has there been on the forces themselves to make this happen? So the frontline commands, the, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force and Strategic Command have been um, absolutely involved in this. Probably the biggest involvement has been through, through the training of Ukrainian soldiers, which has been well publicised. And as Andy says, you know, we're not only training them, but we're providing them equipment too. So it's been a whole force effort. How do, do you sustain the supplies to Ukraine and also sustain UK stocks? 
Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I mean, when we started out, it was absolutely about just getting the Ukrainians as much equipment as we could do as quickly as possible. And then it moved from there to supporting the equipment once it was in country through a variety of means, um, uh, using industry, but also using our soldiers as well. So there are plenty of Rimi soldiers who've been at the end of a WhatsApp message sharing information with Ukrainians on the front, front line about how to repair British equipment that is being used to fight in Ukraine. From the support element, we're now looking to long-term sustainment of, of how we support Ukraine. And part of that is with the industrial base. We've created a task force called Task Force Hearst. And Hearst is looking at defence industrial cooperation, getting UK companies into Ukraine and getting them operating and supporting the Ukrainians with industrial production. I think if I could add to that, Kate, the speed with which we were able to do that really surprised lots of people. We were getting our first contracts out within uh, within 48 hours of, uh, of, the, of the conflict start. And we were moving equipment literally within days. We were getting anti-tank weapons out into theatre uh, and we were getting uh, new drones on contract and, uh, and delivered. In the first six months alone, we had uh, 89 contracts already in place and running. And, and Andy, what, what does the next stage look like to you in supporting Ukraine? There's an absolute recognition that this is going to be potentially a long fight and one where uh, it's all about getting Russia to realise that Ukraine uh, is, is not going to give up and the international community is not going to waver in its long-term support for Ukraine. So in order to do that, firstly, uh, it's about continuing um, the scale and energy of effort and support. And then on top of that, because this is about making sure Ukraine is in a long-term sustainable position, we need to make sure that we help Ukraine build up its own industrial capability. We call that effort Task Force Hearst. That got off to an exciting start last September, uh, having a, a very large uh, Ukrainian delegation at the big DSCI trade show that we have here in the UK. And then just before Christmas, Annalie and I went out to, uh, to Kiev with a number of UK companies, large and small, to start to work with a large community of Ukrainian companies and Ukrainian government to start that process of building up their industrial capability. We've learned some really valuable lessons about how to operate within Ukraine and how to work with our allies and get UK industry really interested and really galvanised by the challenge of supporting Ukrainians. It was, a, it was an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal experience and a, and a really, really useful visit. Andy, um, defence procurement in the UK has been under heavy criticism for many years, described in the media as failing, branded broken by the House of Commons Defence Committee, but they still had praise for work supporting Ukraine. How do you reflect on that? Well, firstly, I'm really pleased and thankful uh, that both the Public Accounts Committee and uh, the House of Commons Defence Select Committee were kind enough to, to acknowledge the work that we've done. They, they came down, met the teams, saw the detail of that work, and actually, I think, were, were genuinely impressed uh, if, if I speak more widely, defence acquisition and its support is always a challenged topic in any nation. When I speak to my colleagues within the NATO Conference of National Armaments Directors, there's, there's 31 of us, shortly to be 32 of us, sitting around the table, and we all have that same experience that our press uh, will, 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 will certainly highlight when we don't excel at delivering something, and, and that's absolutely right and proper in a democracy. 
But we deliver about uh, 2,600 contracts at any one time. That's 550 projects, thousands of items of equipment every year. We deliver 98% of the requirements that are placed on us, the key user requirements that are placed on us by the front front line commands. Uh, And just short of 90% of those, we deliver the strategic milestones on time. We deliver really, really well in most cases. But there are some... Uh, some very high-profile examples where, the, where things have not gone right, and we've definitely got to do a better job of fixing those and getting them back on track. Um, that's why we put so much effort, for example, into, the, into getting the Ajax program back on track again. We've also delivered some really good equipment over the last year. I pull out the work that we've done on uh, RFA Sterling Castle, the, the rapid delivery of Archer vehicles. Um, those kind of things are great to see the tempo of delivery. And there is a recognition that in, uh, in a world that is getting uh, more dangerous, not, uh, not safer, sadly, um, we have to get faster at delivery and we've got to deliver more, more quickly as a collective defence enterprise. So we're putting a, a vast amount of energy as a, t- as a team into being better. Uh, really interesting uh, to, to refer back in the light of what you've just said um, about the speed at which you reacted in providing Ukraine and getting those contracts in place but to get them what they needed. And um, that driver, um, knowing that every day uh, counts in saving lives, must have had a huge impact. Oh, huge. <laughs> yes, absolutely huge. Um, you know, I, I couldn't be prouder of of, of, of what both um, the, the folk in Defence Equipment Support have achieved, but also our colleagues in defence industry. Everyone is motivated by one thing, and that is to get the equipment into the hands of the user, in this case, the Ukrainian user. And, you know, I speak to them regularly as part of my job. They are hugely, hugely grateful. What a lot of people may not know is that about 10% of defence equipment support are serving military. And then uh, about another 20% uh, are veterans or reservists. So the defence, uh, the military community is, is, is a uh, massive part of who we are. And that absolute pride in making a difference that every one of your listeners will know is fundamental to our armed forces personnel. That, that exudes across our organisation when we do the right thing for, uh, for the end user. And just finally, on that note, Anna Lee, as someone who has served their country in uniform, what does it mean to you uh, to be part of the UK's support for Ukraine and its fight for survival? Oh, it means a, it means a great deal. You know, I couldn't be prouder of what we've what we've done here and our, our part in it, um, keeping you know, Ukrainians safe and um, being able to give them the equipment that they need to be able to fight off you know, unprovoked attack from Russia. Being able to contribute to that in any way we can is is is, is absolutely in our DNA, and we should do everything we can to support. Major General Anna Lee Riley and Andy Start, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mike, um, we talked there about balancing UK stocks versus uh, what we give. We hear warnings from some MPs and commentators claiming the cupboards are bare, but the government won't give any figures about how this has affected our own stockpiles. No, it won't. And um, it's very wary of doing that because we all know the stockpiles are pretty low. And it's interesting that Andy Stark spoke there about Storm Shadow, a very good cruise missile. But what we gave was the tranche one of Storm Shadow that we were due to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And it would have cost us money to get rid of them. So it was actually cheaper to give them to Ukraine because they were going out of service anyway. And the question then is, well, if there's about, let's say, 
600 or so storm shadows left in the stock after the tranche one that we've given to Ukraine, why are we holding on to them? Why don't we give them all of those 600? I've argued that for a long time, that mm. they, the Ukrainians need them now, and we will have time to rebuild that stock over some years if Ukraine is able to prevail in this conflict over the next year or so. But the government doesn't want to make that move because it would feel very reckless. So I understand the government's caution on this, but the danger is that we fall between two stools. We don't give the Ukrainians enough that they need, and we still don't have enough ourselves to meet the challenge which is going to get closer if the Ukrainians are not able to defend themselves. Well, one of our European allies has taken a radical decision on how it arms Ukraine because of how important it sees the result of this war to all of us. This is the Danish Prime Minister, Meta Fredriksson, talking to the Victor Pinchuk Foundation at the Munich Security Conference. They are asking us for ammunition now, artillery now. From the Danish side, we, we decided to donate our entire artillery and, and, and I'm sorry to say, friends, there are still ammunition in stock in Europe. This is not only a question about production, because we have weapons, we have ammunitions, uh, we have air defense that we don't have to use ourselves at the moment, that we should deliver to Ukraine. Mike, in one sense, I imagine Denmark's weapons stocks would be a drop in the ocean, but every little bit counts. Perhaps more importantly, it was a very blunt challenge to Denmark's friends to do the same. Yes, because ultimately, I mean, art artillery shells seem like a, a, a sort of metric for everything else, but they're important in themselves because this is very much now for the next month or two, a few months is an artillery war. And the Ukrainians are going to need about two million to two and a half million rounds. The Russians think they need four million rounds, given their rates of, of usage during the next year. And so what's being said by the Danes is that, well, they can have all of ours. And, and the other thing that she, she referred to there, which is very interesting, the fact is that about 40 percent of European production of artillery shells goes somewhere else because they're all based on contracts to other parts of the world and they've mm. got to fulfill those contracts so it seems crazy in one sense but from a an economic point of view you can see the argument that we are already producing 40 percent more artillery than we've got available because it's already ordered outside europe there's no short-term way of changing that but it does show that, it, that the European capacity to produce more artillery is there when these mm. contracts have, have unspun themselves and worked their way through, then all of our artillery production should be going to Europe and therefore, as required, to uh, Ukraine. Well, let's just hear the, the UK's response. The, the Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy, was asked about the idea by the SNP's defence spokesman, Martin Doherty-Hughes. Doesn't the Secretary of State agree, that, or at least the Minister, that allies should be a little more like Denmark when it comes to recognising the consequences of not meeting Ukraine's needs. So, Mr Speaker, um, we're full of admiration for our Danish colleagues, um, but the reality is that the UK has provided almost its entire heavy artillery capability in terms of AS-90. Those that we've held behind are those that service the battle group in Estonia and the very high readiness armoured battle group. Similarly, we've been uh, generous with our ammunition stocks whilst retaining those that we need for our VHR forces. So, uh, Mike, what do you think of that argument? Does it stack up? Could we be sending more artillery to Ukraine? 
Well, not that much more. I mean, we could send more. Um, but I mean, James Heapy is right in the sense that we've given all that we have easily got to give. And we would now be taking risks if we gave more. Now, personally, I'm not the minister, so I would be inclined to take those risks. But mm. the bottom line is that Britain doesn't have these the stocks that make a big difference to Ukraine. The countries that do have those stocks are other European powers and, of course, the United States. When we gave so many of the anti-tank weapons that really did make a difference, we gave the things that most mattered at the time. But as the war has gone on, we don't have the weapons that would really make the difference to Ukraine in mm. the numbers for ourselves, let alone for them, that would actually turn the tide. And when James Heapy says we've given the AS-90s, yeah, that's the, the very heavy uh, howitzer. They're very good, very, very old, but very good. But we had a very few that we could give. We've given mm. them the whole the stock that was still roadworthy or, or, or movable, and it wasn't mm. very many. And so the fact is we, we are not, we cannot be the arsenal of Ukraine because we just don't don't have the stuff. Only the United States and some other European countries like Poland could act as the arsenal for Ukraine. Mike, I think it's a subject we're going to come back to again and again. Thanks. Now, a significant shake-up of how military accommodation is allocated will come into effect on the 11th of March. The plan changes include allowing unmarried couples in long-term relationships to have service family accommodation. Homes will also be allocated on the basis of need rather than rank. The government says this new accommodation offer will modernise accommodation entitlements, but there are losers as well as winners. So much so that a petition calling for a government rethink gathered more than 15,000 signatures in the space of 10 days. Well, let's bring in SITREP's James Wharton. James, hi. Um, can you give us a bit more detail about the changes and how they'll be introduced? Well, yeah, there, there are a number of changes, some slight, but some massive. And those are the ones you've already mentioned. It's the widening out of entitlement to include those who are not married, a first in the armed forces, and the move to awarding properties on a needs basis, not because of a person's rank or position in the chain of command. How will they be introduced? Well, to put it bluntly, pretty soon, uh, a little over in two weeks, in fact. And I think that's partly why there's quite a few people unhappy about this. Uh, we should note that this new policy is limited to the UK, so at the moment it won't affect those based overseas. And James, it's obviously difficult for serving personnel to speak out publicly, but I know you've spoken to some of those with concerns. What are they worried about? Well, as you said, there are winners and losers to the new policy, and that pretty much depends where you sit within the armed forces, where you sit within the chain of command, and actually where you sit in your life. If we just take a look at, uh, at the widening out of el eligibility to those in long-term relationships, it's obviously a very good thing for personnel who are in long-term relationships and who are not married. They'll wake up on the 11th of March and potentially find themselves eligible for a house. But I've spoken to a commanding officer who was worried about the service family accommodation stock known as SFA, at their base location. They say the MOD isn't building any, any more new homes uh, mm. and the current number of vacant properties they've got near their camp will likely be taken up in no time at all. And this will leave those who are eligible in the future without a property near their base, meaning they'll be offered SFA elsewhere, or may even have to turn to the private rental sector in order to be able to live together with their partner. So it's very much a case of making more people eligible, yet not building extra properties to account for that in some areas. 
But those concerns are nothing compared to the mass of officers who are frankly furious about the other big change, which is that of awarding homes on a needs basis, as opposed to what it has been to date. Mm. Historically, officers, as they've moved up the ranks, at at a certain point, they automatically qualified for a specifically sized house. It didn't really matter how many children they had, because when they hit that certain rank, say, a major in the British Army, they just automatically became entitled to the property, even if it had more bedrooms and space than they might otherwise need, certainly more space than, say, a Lance Corporal with two or three children would have to apply for. That will all stop when this new policy takes effect. And that will lead to the end, at some point, of officers-only SFA estates, which are fairly typical in the army, officers for very good reasons are discouraged from socialising with those they command. It's why there's officers' messes and it's why historically officers have also had their own streets and housing estates on military bases away from other families. The other thing to just say here is that um, I've just filed a report in which I've compared side by side aerial shots of SFA estates on the same military base, one Mm. for officers and one for other ranks. And let me tell you, they are markedly different. One is very nice, lovely big gardens, very leafy. The other isn't. And I think a lot of the upset from those who've signed this petition is that they face being moved from the nicer state to the not so nicer state. Okay, well, we'll talk through that point about separation between officers and other ranks in a moment. But let's just pause to hear from Maria Lyle, director of the RAF Families Federation, about what she makes of the changes. I'm not sure that the phrase winners and losers quite sums it up, but I think there are undoubtedly people who will look at this and feel that the offer that they joined under uh, has changed and and not in a positive way. Uh, But there's cohorts of people that can now access accommodation in a way they weren't able to before. So there are people who will benefit from these changes. And what concerns have been raised with you by RAF families? So a number of people have flagged to us that their uh, accommodation in the future is likely to be smaller, you know, whether they'll be able to fit in, for example, the furniture they have into the space they might be able have to move into in the future. That's been an issue. And the other areas that have been flagged with us have been around single living accommodation and people who weren't previously paying charges um, having to pay for that. And sometimes they're the same group of people who may also be told that their family accommodation will now be a smaller entitlement. So at times we've got groups of people who feel that they're being um, doubly hit. And there are transitional arrangements over the next three years to protect people from ending up with fewer rooms. There's the opportunity to request support with private rented accommodation in certain circumstances. Is that enough? So it it means that nothing will happen too quickly. And as of literally this morning, one of the things that the MOD has brought in in response to people saying that they weren't happy with all these changes is that the change for single living accommodation, the charges that were being introduced that weren't there for some groups of people, um, they're being halted for the first year whilst the MOD looks at how they could potentially do that differently. So that's a mitigation that the MOD has brought in in response to organisations like ours 
and in response to the feedback they've had from meetings with people. So that's positive. The mitigations overall for some people probably won't be enough. They'll still feel that they that the changes that have been made to their package are significant and that a, a sort of period where they're being introduced still means eventually their eligibility will be reduced. Now, in terms of if there's anything else the MOD could do, I have seen a, a lot of people lobbying to say, why does introducing benefits for some mean that other people um, have their offer reduced. So if there's any way that the MOD could keep the same offer and just broaden that to the full um, armed services, that seems to be effectively what the cohort would want to see who are getting their entitlement reduced. But that comes with a set of costs. Um, and I think it's that that's, provi- that's providing the challenge for MOD. Maria Lyle, great to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. James, what what about this point you make about separation of officers and other ranks? Why is it an issue? Kate, soldiers tend to make great neighbours to fellow soldiers uh, and officers are great neighbours for other officers. In some of the smallest single unit locations where there's only one unit or in the army, one battalion or say at an army training regiment, this policy will, it's feared, result in commanders living potentially next door to the soldiers under their command. Uh, and that can't be good for anybody. A source Forces News spoke to earlier this week used the expression air gap, which refers to a space that must exist outside of duties among seniors and juniors. And traditionally, that's always been the case. Mike, is that separation really important or is it just outdated military tradition? No, I don't think it's outdated. It is a genuine issue that that there is a separation between those who lead and those who follow or who are led and deserve to be led in a certain sort of way. You know, when when, um, young men and women go to Sandhurst to train as officers, they're told you've got to be able to do everything your soldiers can do and do it better. You've got to be better than your soldiers so that you set the example. You know, the, the British forces rely on the officer cadre to drive the force along and then they rely on NCOs as the backbone of the of the soldiers and it is the case I mean Montgomery used to say there are no such things as bad soldiers only bad officers mm. and the you know the motto above Sandhurst is serve to lead that's a very important motto serve to lead and so that separation is very important I mean how that is is um, implemented in real life is a difficult issue as this is obviously a difficult issue but that separation isn't just outdated it is important serve to lead James, I'm going to play uh, devil's advocate now. Uh, When you were in the army, I imagine Lance Corporal Wharton would have very much welcomed these changes and maybe felt that complaints were just officers being sniffy about getting the nicest houses. Honestly, even last week when I when I first started looking at this, the the voice of my former self, a young Lance (laughs) Corporal, was there in my head telling me, what? Of course, officers should stop automatically getting these bigger houses. But I've spoken to many officers this week and and some feel the MOD is breaking commitments that were made when these guys signed their military contracts. One told me he knew for a fact people would resign over this. But I've also spoken to others, one in particular, and he he really pressed this point uh, home to me about soldiers and officers living next door to each other. Would I have wanted my company to IC or even my company commander to move into the house next door to me when I was a 21 year old Lance Corporal? 
I don't think I would have liked that very much. And I don't think they'd have liked that very much. I mean, imagine if you heard a row through the wall. You'd, you know, you'd yeah. go into the into base the next day in the naffy and you'd be telling all your mates that you heard the boss mm. having a row with his partner last night. And on that basis, I, I think these guys have a strong argument. But let's see if anyone um, in Whitehall hears it. I'm just imagining pictures of people talking about who takes the bins out in that situation. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, being at home, being in work, you know, these these two things, we don't really like to see cross over, do we? And and mm. I think this this policy will lead to inevitably lead to that in some locations. James, good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Um, Thank final you. thought, Mike. Um, some in the MOD may be feeling they're damned if they do, damned if they don't right now. But it's really important they get accommodation right, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, one of the problems that the, the military have at the moment is uh, re recruitment and retention. And retention in particular uh, is an issue. And, you know, all of the surveys show that the, the things that matter to retention most or the things that make people leave early are matters of education for the children and accommodation. And of those two, accommodation is the most important. And this is, I mean, all of these issues arise because the defence of state is under su such stress. That's the mm. point. If, if it wasn't so stressed, they wouldn't be pushed into these proposals. And that's the problem. It's, it's years of underinvestment in the whole of the defence state that's, that's created this situation. It's very regrettable. Mike, thank you for that. Uh, and our thanks to all of our guests. That's almost it from us. But there is an extra edition of the SITREP podcast online now. Mike and I talk about the second failure in a row of a British Trident missile in testing Embarrassing, yes, but how significant is it? You can find that at bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.